0: Yeah, okay, now I can hear. Thank you. Lots of helpers today. That's great. It's the A-team, as they say. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we could sing these songs and hymns to you, to be reminded again of your mercy and your grace and your love for us. We thank you how you've worked in such a remarkable way that we who who deserve death, and condemnation have found life and grace and mercy. And for that, we'll be always grateful. Be with us. Help us, we pray, that, Lord, that you would be with us and help us as we hear the scriptures today, that our hearts would be focused on you and your word, and that you would speak to us through the scriptures that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few weeks, as you know, we've been working in a series in First Corinthians. It's just an amazing book. and This morning, we're in the last half of this book, First Corinthians. And there's just about a little bit of background for this. Some of you are familiar with it. you were here or maybe not. But what we have in this um, last week, when we were together, is one of the big things we talked about, the correct attire when they're church. It's not talking about, do you need a tie or anything, or coat or jacket. The point is, Men are to be wearing, he said, not being having a hat or anything, but the women should have a veil. Talked about particularly in that culture at that time, that was a very significant thing, that the women looked like women and the men looked like men, and it made it pretty clear. And he had that phrase that was very, very important, but yet some people struggle with it, where he said, "Christ is the head of every man, and man, and man, and the man is the head of the woman." And he talked about the fact that gender does matter. We talk about male and female. We have a culture that's trying to blur it all together. It doesn't mean anything. But the scriptures make it very clear it is. You go right to the Genesis and go go to the very first couple chapters. Talk about God created man, out of that he created woman, and there would be a distinction between them. But the other thing that was very important last week, right at the end of that passage in chapter 10, was a short little section on the Lord's table. And that's important because the only two places we find this in the New Testament is there, in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And so what we, when that's, that, last week, that passage, that little short section at the very end, the main theme was unity. We have one bread that we all share together and how important it is that the body of Christ stays together and serves and make sure we keep the unity of the body. And so going on from that, we go on to this next chapter, and it's an important passage because now he's going to go to a deeper, a little bit level, greater level of what does this mean when we talk about the Lord's table, which we do here every week. And so we're picking this up in verse 17. If, you're an, if you have your Bible with it, it's First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And Paul is coming out with just, he's 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 angry okay? He's ready to tell them what they need to know. And I'm sure if you were sitting there, you would think like, wow, we just got a scolding, because it'd probably been more than that. Because what Paul's doing here, he's recognizing that here again, this church that had such strength and ability and had so many wonderful things going, was once again in trouble. You may remember when we started the series, at the very beginning, there were problems with issues. People struggling over, you know, who's this? And I'm of Apollos and yours of that. And It was really a bad thing. But now here again, he's like, here we go again. This church where I spent a year and a half of my life is once again having problems. Not the same problems that they had in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 that we read about, but a different situation that still was absolutely deadly for the body of Christ if they don't get a grip of what Paul's trying to teach them. And so the passage goes like this. Remember, now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, when the Apostle Paul tells you that, it's like you ought to listen. What it? What was the one when C.E. Barney speaks or something? You remember that one? Bar- Her- Her- Lynch? Merrill Lynch? Merrill Lynch. When Merrill Lynch speaks, people listen. When they used to, right? They're probably out of business now. But anyways, the point is... When you, and it says, when you have the Apostle Paul sitting in front of you and says, you know what, it's not for the better or for the worse, you ought to be listening. He says this, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, by the way, that little word there is that word we've heard a lot of, ecclesia, that idea of a gathering used in the Christian church, the idea of this is the church. There are divisions. By the way, the word there is schisma. We got that, comes right into English language. Let's talk about schisms. He said, that's a church, and there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. In other words, I don't think they're lying about this. The church is a wreck again. And once again, here at the very place where God meets man, we're there at the Lord's table. The fact that this place is a mess, this is a real problem. And we need to deal with it. And so he's ready to deal with it. And he's angry, and he's letting them know. And he's giving them both barrels. And so here we want to ask the question, so what's the main thing that he is most concerned about? Now, there's several things going on here. And by the way, if you go through the commentaries, you'll see some people put an emphasis on this part of the problem. Others put it on another emphasis on another part of the problem. Probably the main issue that's going on here, as we'll see it in these next few verses, is the problem between the haves and the have-nots. That is, it seems to be almost a sociological type thing. You have some points, like the difference between the poor and the rich. It seems to be this became a critical issue going on in the life of the church. And to think that this was happening at church, at the Lord's Supper, to have this kind of thing going on. We have some very, very rich people and some very, very poor people, many of them slaves or just common workers, said this is where the thing started and this is where we're going to end it. Because this is not what we really call the Lord's Supper. So let's go to this passage. We'll see a little bit how he brings that out. And he has a strange phrase here in verse 19. He said, there must indeed be factions. Heresis, we get this word heretics out of it. He said, indeed, there must be factions among you so that the proved among you may be recognized. And it's like, what? Do they wear a sign on their back or something saying recognize? Uh, I don't think so. But the point that he's trying to make here, he says, you know what? When we go through this, we're going to find out those who are really sincere in their faith and who are committed to the body of Christ and those that really are not. And so he's going to say, you know, we hate to have it. We hate to have these problems happening. But out of the bad things comes a good thing of knowing who are the ones that are really commit, committed to Christ and who are those who are not. And who are those who are the troublemaker and who are those who are not. And so he says in verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, and this is, can you imagine what this would be like? He said, when you come together in one place, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, you've got to imagine, think about, you're there, Apostle Paul, he's got this letter, he's gotten this thing telling what's going on, and they say, well, of course it's the Lord's table. We've got a pastor, we've got some bread, we've got some wine, we've got a place to meet. We're good. Everything's good, right? Right. Paul says, no, everything's lousy. Well, he didn't say that. I'm helping Paul out on this one a little bit, okay? Paul says, no, that's not right. You call this the Lord's Supper? Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Notice what he says. And here's where the issue, we see the issue coming in about the sociological one between rich and poor. He says, you know, for an eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One person's hungry while another's drunk. Now, I know there's a lot of churches that have problems. But I don't think there's many of them that have pastors that are drunk at the time when they get up there. I should hope not. But he's saying, this is really happening. Here in this church, he's saying, you can't believe this is happening. And what's happening here is very, very important. And, again, it goes back to this issue that for a lot of the rich people, for them, you know, they didn't. most of them did not work. They didn't have necessary jobs. If they'd done, they were done late in the, you know, in the afternoon. The thing was time for them. And so they're like, hey, I can't wait to get to the service. See you there. And they get there, and sure enough, there's people. They've gotten food, and they're eating good. There's a lot of good wine for people to share. But the poor people, particularly the slaves, particularly the common worker, they don't get out till later in the evening. For a slave, it may be even later. You have to wait until the slave master says, all right, you're free to go. And so what happens is these guys are having a good meal. Everything's great. Food is good like the wine. We're doing great, aren't we? And somebody says, hey, are, you guys are pretty rich, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, you could afford to have your, you know, go to Wendy's after, you know, earlier on, so you're not eating all the food up. Yeah, you could. But you're not. You think it's all about you. And because you're rich, and because you have money, you, th- you don't even think about it. But look, here coming in, Okay, here's so-and-so. She's a slave. You can tell her head has been completely shaved down. She's a slave, and she comes in. There's no wine. They have water. There's water, there's no food. The other people, they've been been eating for the last hour and a half. And then another person comes in. He's been working all day. He stinks a little bit. He's been working in a quarry. And he comes again. He says, where's the food? Well, they ate it all. So tell me again, the rich people got to eat all the food, and the rest of us peons get nothing but a drink of water, right? Right. Paul says, wrong. The whole point is about the unity of the body. That's what he talked about in that previous chapter, that first part of it, in chapter 10. There is one Christ, one body. And he says, you have embarrassed and you have hurt your brothers and sisters who don't have what you have. Notice what he says. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? He's speaking again to those that are well off. If you're really that hungry, have a little mid-afternoon meal hold you over until the rest of the people come. He said, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. It's like, how could you not think that this is not a problem? When poor people and workers are coming in and they're looking forward to hear the Lord. And what happens? Food's gone wine's gone, the ones who probably are probably the most hungry, they're not going to get anything or very little. You know, we know from what we get from some of the Roman and Greek writers, as I said, oftentimes when they'd have a big meal, which of course the church did. The church met, they had a meal, everybody shared in it. But often, and we don't know how much this happened in the Christian church, but if they followed the practice of a lot of the Greek and the Romans, if somebody was really important, they may get double meal. And a person who was not important, like a slave or a worker, they may get just a little bit. So in other words, you got your food based on what your level is sociologically. So, like, so already, these poor people are not getting in there. They're getting even less, because the more important people get to have more field than others, food than others. And so he says, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I'm not going to praise you for this. It's all about Christ, not about your food. And he's saying, if you can't get this idea and understand what's happening here, this church is going to be a wreck. Because we ought to be caring for those that have needs. And we ought to be waiting for those that are coming. And then Jesus, I mean, excuse me, and then we get this beautiful phrase that has become so important to us. And then he says, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance in me. We think probably that that last phrase, it's in like whatever that is, is—is orange. This is my body, which is for you. Do this remembrance. That may have been what the Apostle Paul wrote. We don't know if it wasn't. It could have already been a phrase that they were using. But it's only like two places in the New Testament. You got it. And here they are. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we do every Sunday. And many churches do it every Sunday. Tragically, as you know, many churches are moving away from doing the Lord's Supper, or they do it once a quarter. Uh, Some, not at all. Uh, And that's tragic. The Apostle Paul, the early church writers, the great reformers, they all thought the Lord's Supper was absolutely uh, important for the life of the congregation. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant. They had lived under the old covenant. Now with Christ, they're in the new covenant. He said, do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. That phrase keeps coming out, in remembrance, in remembrance, what Christ has done for us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're going to be saying these phrases again in just a little while. And then here he says at verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man, and I would add the word woman, so a man, a person, should examine himself or herself. And the way should eat the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is an amazing phrase. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. In other words, you're dead. The Apostle Paul takes the Lord's Supper very, very significant. And it ought to be for us as well. He says, if we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. In other words, God sometimes has to bring discipline on us to get us back on the right track so that we may not be condemned with the world. You don't want to be part of what the world's doing away from God. And he said, you want to make sure that you are serving the Lord as he's called you to do so. He says, therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He said, yeah, we've been here all afternoon, though. Yeah, you have been. You've eaten all the food. So why don't you either come later or make sure that you make sure that you have a little bit to save for the people that are coming in at 5 o'clock, at 6 o'clock, at 7 o'clock, that they can share what you're doing. It's interesting. The archaeologists have done a lot of work in in Greece and France, I mean France, not France, Greece and Rome. One of the things they found out that a lot of times you had somebody who had a fairly rich, who had a nice home, And the Christians would worship there. But sometimes, oftentimes, they think that that room was not enough for everybody. And so who do you think got to sit in the nice room? The rich people. Where did the workers go? Most of them sat outside. And that, again, became an issue and a struggle of saying, wait a minute. I thought we talked about the unity. We are one in the Lord. We have it all. you know, where is that? And so he says, so that you can come together and not cause judgment, and I'll give instructions about the other matters when I come. And I'll bet he gave them to him big time about what was going on. The Lord's Supper is a crucial part of the Christian faith. And what I want to do is just spend a couple minutes kind of helping you give you a background on how did we get this? How did we end up with this in the way that we have it? I want to tell you just a little bit, just to kind of give you the broad picture. Of what the Lord has done over these centuries. From the time that Jesus Christ died and rose again, from the time to bring this here, there's been a lot of change in the Lord's Supper, the way people have understood it, the way people uh, dealt with it. And so what do what, just a few minutes, and I think hopefully it's gonna be helpful to you, but give you an idea of what went on. For example, in the early church, they were so aware of the fact that there was a new covenant. There was newness in Christ. There was freedom. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace. And of course, the things that came for the early church comes right out of the Passover. There at that Passover, where they saw that lamb that was killed, it reminded the fact that that Jesus Christ was the lamb, the lamb who was slain for us, that we could have freedom, that we could have salvation for our redemption. And they said, hey, you know, We Jewish people only do it once a year, you know, at Passover. But as new Christians in the new covenant, why don't we do this every Sunday? The Sunday is the day of resurrection. Why don't we meet every Sunday and we'll have a a fellowship meal? And we're not going to find out, you know, we're not going to have tags saying who did what. We're just going to eat what's there. And we're going to make sure that the rich make sure they don't eat it all. We're going to make sure that it's fair. And so they started realizing this is a wonderful thing. You have rich and poor mingled together, there at the church, and it didn't matter. People don't care how much money you made, what you didn't have, what you did. The point is, we could be here together and realize what God has done for us. Justin Martyr, one of the great early church fathers, put it this way. He just described some of the things that they did as a church. let's like th- be like third century. He said, talked about the people that come who maybe want to be Christians. He said, "And this food that they gives, this food is, ca- is, is uh, called among us." The Eucharist, you've heard that word before, of which no one can participate but the man who believes the things we teach are true. In other words, you had to believe. You weren't welcome into that meal unless you were a believer. And who has been washed with the washing of that is for the remission of sins. you have to be a Christian to come in for doing that, for doing that. Now today we would think if we said, what do you mean I can't bring my friend in? Well, I don't know, but in early church it was very clear that it was for Christians only. When they came to faith in Christ, would please come on in. But the most centuries, in the early centuries, that's exactly what it was. They were call it fencing the table. It was only those who had come to faith in Christ who could come in for the meal. And that was a common thing. The early church had to deal with that and then the, as it changed in time, but things did change. As you know, in about the 11th century, there was a lot of things going on in Europe. Things were strange. And there was a lot of discussion going on for centuries about what do we really mean about the Lord's Supper? What does it mean? What does, how does that touch our lives? And so there's a mystery about the Lord's table. For what you see in the medieval church from the 11th century on, a lot of it had to do with what the church called transubstantiation. Now, I know many of you have been reading about this a lot recently. Uh, no, probably not. Um, but transubstantiation became the church's basic thing talking about when the priest is there has got the, the bread and the wine mixed together, put on there. When that happens, a miracle occurs. It may look like bread and wine, but it's really not. A miracle has occurred, and Christ is there physically in that position right there. It's there when you, when you take that. And it was interesting because there were a lot of very, very smart, uh, Christian leaders who came back to the church and said, you know, there's not a single thing of this that we can see in the Bible that talks about this. And they basically said, well, the church has spoken and that's the way it's gonna be. And so you can see how some people saying, really? I mean, this, there's, there's been a miracle and it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, and, but it's not. No, it's the body of Christ. You are taking the body of Christ there and in the molecules, people go really, and they go yeah. And by the way, today it's, it's still part of it's part of the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, but it's rarely really talked about today. I've had some Catholic friends and people I've met, and Catholic priests, and they say, oh yeah, I, you know nobody believes that stuff anymore. But don't tell the priest I said that. You know, I mean it's that kind of thing. But it was very big in that day. Transubstantiation. Out of that though came the one that was called. The wild boar that is loosed in God's garden. Okay, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, of course, a priest, a monk. I should say, in the Catholic Church, he was a very godly man. Uh, wondered how could I? Fi- how could he find faith in God? How could he be saved? And he had such an amazing ministry. And of course, what he did was just remarkable. I mean, again, Martin Luther. You know did not leave. They kicked him out for what he was teaching. But one of the good things that came out of that was Martin Luther went a little bit further. He said, first of all, he doesn't go with that part about, you know, the, it becomes, you know, becomes a miracle. He said that doesn't happen. But the big thing he also said is he talked about the fact that what we have here is not so much that a miracle, but consubstantiation. He's talking about the fact that God's presence is always around us, and so he uses, they use that when the Lutheran Church, to some extent, still uses that idea that God is present among us, and he's there with the, when we worship. Okay? So that was a big thing that became very important. It was like taking one step, a big step, away from the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, he was hunted and chased and all this, trying to get away and to survive. And it's amazing how he ever did survive. And so that was important time, because now the Lord's Supper was a little bit different than it had been in their Catholic time, during his own time. The other one that changed, what we call it, consubstantiation, is when you talk about it, uh, here's a quote of it from Luther. The sacrament is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, given to us Christians to eat and drink as it was instituted by the Christ himself. So Luther still said, yes, there's something very special here, that here with the bread... Christ is, is here, and we are there together as Christians. But he's making a step away from the Roman Catholic Church, but a lot of it is still here today. That We go on from there. There's a guy that many of you may not be aware of. Maybe you will. But his name is Huldrych Zwingli. Uh, not a common name, but a brilliant man. And he, if, if Luther, if this was the Catholic Church, Luther took a big step over here, and Zwingli took another big step over here. I said, no, there's no, you know, hokey pokey going on. There's no, you know, Adams going and changing in the thing. He said, you know what it is? It's a remembrance. We've always believed that when we come together at the Lord's table, it's a remember. We remember what Christ has done for us. We remember what we were, what Christ has done, and how we have been changed by his power. And so Zwingli became very, very imp- powerful, very, very important in, in the whole idea of what was going on. During that time, he was younger than Luther when that was happening. And most churches today, most evangelical churches today, most people would say that that goes back to Zwingli. That we would we would say that every Sunday, at least I should say we do, other churches do as well. We go back and saying that is a telling to us it's a reminder of what God has done for us. And how we're to respond to His grace. Okay? So whether you ever heard of Holdrick Zwingli or not, or even character, whether you'd meet him and hear about it or not, you won't meet him, by the way, unless you get, when you get to heaven. But hit, that position has been the most dominant one in the Christian Church in the past 100 couple of years. And you can see why? because it's a very good one. It talks about that. The person though, that I personally think who's done the best about understanding the Lord's Supper is this guy named John Calvin, a Frenchman who many people laugh at him and scorn him. You ask those people, have you read anything that Calvin wrote? Well, uh, no. OK, well, then don't talk about it, OK? He was a brilliant guy. Brilliant. Uh, his writings, uh, he was writing when he was like only 22 years old, gave it to a, a, a series of To the King. A re- incredible man, incredible man. And here, his is his position, which I would lean to as well. And so this, we call it real presence. That is, Christ is really present when God's people gather together at the Lord's table. He put it this way, Christ is with his people at the Lord's table. He said, communion with Christ takes place when we soar up to heaven to be with Christ through the power of the Spirit. Calvin is remembered for the fact that he is the one that recognized the necessity and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to come to come into relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the privilege that we have to think that we could come here to this table and to know that Christ is really here, its real presence. Now I want you to stop for a minute. Suppose, so we've got three people living on, right up, not living, standing this one here. Suppose, Mary, I told you, that Jesus was sitting right next to you. That would be quite an experience, I would think. And if Kathy's over there realizing that Jesus is right there, we might live a different way, or be a little bit more excited, or a little bit more overwhelmed by God's goodness. Calvin says, every time God's people gather around the table and their hearts open to the Lord, he is there. He's with us. We are part of that great thing of what God has done that brings us into relationship with him. That's why it's called the real presence. One of the things that Zwingli did not have, but Calvin did, was very important. He basically said this. He said, listen, people say, well, what happened to you, Supper?' Nothing happened? Calvin says, no, that's wrong. Things do happen. God encourages people. He challenges his people. He enables his people through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we do with the Lord's Supper and God has been good with us. Real quick, one more thing. You Remember that passage? It ends with a warning. It says, you better be careful. When you turn away from the Lord's table, when you turn to yourself and away from others, he said, some are sick and some have died. Now you got to be really careful here some of our Pentecostal and Charismatic brothers are quick to say, "Oh, yep, well that person sick and died because there must have been sin in their life." They say, "Well, Jesus had something to say about that." They ask, "What about this blind man? Who who's sin? Was it his father or his mother?" He says, "Neither. This is to the glory of God." In other words, not all sin is not, I mean, not all sickness is sin. And so that was really important. They had to say, okay, well, the warning is you've got to be careful. The other way you've got to be careful, for, as for obviously, we're maybe not charismatic, is do you really think that there's times where God says, okay, I'm going to bring this into your life to chasten you or to humble you or to put, or maybe because of the fact that you're not responding, maybe because you've turned away, maybe you're dead. We don't like to talk about things like that. But it sure seems to me that that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching. That this is important. It's not just crackers and juice, it's meeting with the risen Christ who died for us. Father, how thankful we are for the way that you have worked in us and through us we would ask that you would be with us and help us to understand that you have given us this wonderful thing, the Lord's Supper, that there we can meet with other brothers and sisters in Christ, but more important, we can meet with you, Lord Jesus, being connected to all those throughout time who have known you, who have loved you, who are now in your presence, and we can be part of what you're doing. Be with us, we pray. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.